0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, it's Tintoretto's 500th birthday, more or less. He was either born 500 years ago last year or this, we don't know. And to celebrate, the National Gallery of Art is hosting three Tintoretto exhibitions. We'll discuss two of them on this week's podcast. First up, Museum of Fine Arts Boston curator Frederick Ilchman. Along with Robert Eccles, Ilchman has organized Tintoretto Artist of Renaissance Venice, The exhibition, which is the first Tinderetto retrospective in the United States, opens on Sunday and will remain on view through July 7th. It includes about 50 paintings and over a dozen works on paper. The outstanding exhibition catalog, really more than a catalog of an exhibition and an overview of all of Tinderetto's career, was published by the National Gallery of Art and Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $42. On the second segment, Morgan Library curator John Marchiari discusses Drawing in Tintoretto's Venice, a survey of roughly 80 drawings by Tintoretto and his Venetian cohorts. It also opens on Sunday and will remain on view at the National Gallery through June 9th. It originated at the Morgan. That show's excellent catalog was published by Paul Holberton Publishing. Amazon offers it for $40. And just so you know, the third show, which we won't be discussing on this week's podcast, is titled Venetian Prints in the Time of Tintoretto. It also opens on Sunday. It closes June 9th. Frederick Ilchman, after a break. (coughs) The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Focus on Aliyah Saban. The Los Angeles-based artist takes traditional artistic media, such as paint, marble, and canvas, and pushes their limits in inventive ways that merge scientific experimentation with art making. Saban blurs the distinctions between media, questioning the material and conceptual boundaries of an artwork, while revitalizing the notion of what art or the process of making art can be. For her Focus exhibition, Saban presents all new works, including tapestries and paintings, based on the geometric patterns of computer circuitry. On view from March 30th to May 12th. Visit themodern.org for more information. Support for The Man podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. The Pulitzer presents Striking Power, Iconoclasm in Ancient Egypt, the first exhibition to examine specific periods in the rich history of Egypt when clashes between competing leaders, religions, and ideologies resulted in damage to, and destruction of, sacred and political images. Focusing on the legacies of pharaohs Hatshepsut and Akhenaten, as well as the destruction of objects in late antiquity, the exhibition will pair damaged works, from fragmented heads to altered inscriptions, with undamaged examples. With nearly 40 masterpieces on loan from the renowned collection of the Brooklyn Museum, Striking Power is on view from March 22 through August 11, 2019. Striking Power, Iconoclasm in Ancient Egypt is organized in collaboration with the Brooklyn Museum. For more information, please visit PulitzerArts.org. On Saturday, March 23rd, the hit public radio show and podcast Selected Shorts comes to the Getty Center. Enjoy an evening of memorable live performances by actors and guest introducers Darcy Carden of The Good Place, Tony Hale of Veep, Michael McKean of Better Call Saul, Elizabeth Reeser of The Haunting of Hill House, and Baron Vaughn of Grace and Frankie. Actor Jane Kizmarek hosts. Get tickets and learn more at getty.edu slash 360. And we're back. Frederick Gilchman, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So many of the greatest Tintoretto's are where they're going to be until the oceans reclaim Venice. No painter fulfilled more commissions for Venetian institutions than Tintoretto, and by far, and of course, many of them are effectively immovable. So when you think about a show, of, about launching a show of Tintoretto's work here in the United States, where do you start? Do you do you come up with a strategy? How do you address that
1: that problem? Well, there have been several impediments to doing a major Tintoretto show, certainly doing one in North America. It's that the works are vast in scale often, and many of his best works are really big. Then also there's been a sort of persistent uncertainty of what Tintoretto really painted. He's a, one of those old master artists with a lot of questions about how you define the borders of his oeuvre. You know, what's really by Tintoretto himself? What's more delegated to members of his workshop? And what is actually by a totally other artist, right? Someone in His orbit, you might say, but never trained by Tintoretto and certainly not produced under the master's supervision. And the cleaning up of Tintoretto's oeuvre, the sort of finer connoisseurship, is a project that goes back, you know, really more than 20 years. My co curator, Robert Eccles, co curator for the Washington exhibition, he was really the first to systematically look at Tintoretto's early work and try to define, using mostly visual evidence, what was by Tintoretto himself and what was by another artist. And what was fascinating is that whole sections of Tintoretto's early work, you know, a supposed Schiavone period or a kind of archaic moment and uh, reaction to the arrival of Paolo Veronese, all these little groups of works that look similar are not stages in Tintoretto's development, but rather the kind of oeuvre of lesser Tintoretto followers. By removing those lesser works from the Tintoretto catalog, particularly the early years, you end up with a much stronger artist, one who's always experimental and sometimes hasty or lazy. But one who moves from strength to strength as he really finds his way as a major thinker about about human form and religious narrative and then produces these great works. I followed Robert's dissertation with my own dissertation on Tintoretto's middle period and really did some of the same work and built upon that. And this gave us in various publications a much better sense of what Tintoretto actually did. So there's a sense that if you can, for any exhibition, you can only show a limited number of works. You want to make sure that each one really bears its own weight and is impressive and tells the right things to the public. Now, beyond that, as you mentioned, big point about logistics, and most of Tintoretto paintings are very large. They're almost all on canvas, and canvas can be rolled up to get it through a door, but in most cases, Tintoretto would have painted the picture in a studio or another space, rolled up the canvas, transported it by boat, and then brought it into the building and unrolled it, placing it on the on the wall, presumably forever. It was not gonna, you know, move again. A lot of his paintings are, though, in museums around the world. And so we've been thinking from the start about dimensions. There are works that we would love to have uh, in an exhibition, and they're just too big for, uh, to get on a 747, or too big to get through a doorway, or around the corner in a building right and so in a sense any exhibition is a compromise but in a case of Tintoretto what we can display is only a portion of his best works because some of them are just too large and they're even too large for the walls of the National Gallery of Art and that's a museum with big rooms.
0: It's worth noting that the book published on the occasion of the exhibition is, is really more than a catalog of the exhibition. It, it includes dozens, if not scores, of Tintoretto's that, that couldn't be moved and that are, are, are still in Venice. It's a, a, a tremendous thing. It clearly aims to be the go-to Tintoretto monograph in English. This is, in some ways, your second big Tintoretto show because you were part of the team that put together the 2000 exhibition at the Prado.
1: It was actually 2007, and and you could even argue that actually it's the third time round because there was 2007 at the Prado, and then at MFA Boston, Titian, Tintoretto, Veronese: Rivals in Renaissance Venice. That was 2009, and both Robert and I uh, were 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 part of those both exhibitions. The one in Boston, particularly, but the one the Prado, we we were real key uh, assistance to Miguel Falomir, uh, who was then curator of Italian paintings in Madrid, and now he's in fact the director of the Prado.
0: He's in your catalog. We'll, we'll talk about that a little later, and we'll talk about the Boston show a little later too. Were there any questions or ideas or theories about Teneretto's work that were unclear in, in your mind in 2007 and that you've been able to address here in this show?
1: The biggest clarification, I think, between the 2007 exhibition at the Prado in Madrid and this current exhibition is that Tintoretto, we've made the case that he is really one of the great portrait painters of the Renaissance and and one of the outstanding portraitists of the 16th century. Tintoretto's portraits are complicated in that He's been a kind of rubbish bin of all sorts of attributions, you know, the bearded, elderly man in a sort of official Venetian uh, senator's robes, uh, all sorts of pictures by other artists are just called Tintoretto, and indeed, he was so influential, his kind of type, a certain Uh, sobriety to the image, um, darker backgrounds, kind of direct lighting on the face. This is employed by many artists in Venice in Tidoretto's time and the generation after. And the exhibition in Madrid was a super achievement. It was just amazing. The curator there, the head there, Miguel Falomir, decided to display that chronologically ordered. And as many of the portraits don't have dates, or we don't know the sitter, it's hard to determine when it was painted. So, the arrangement was to take the more um, fixed dates of religious paintings, altarpieces, mythological works, and then try to line up the portraits closest to the ones that made a certain sense that, you know, had seemed to have a stylistic similarity. The problem though was also one of scale in that, many Tintoretto portraits of a single figure look diminutive next to a big religious painting or a big mythological painting. And so they didn't really have the impact they wanted. And that seemed, something seemed very important to, to Robert and me is to, let's have a room, first from the Venice version of the exhibition last fall, and then the upcoming version in Washington, uh, have a room that is uh, just for portraits so you can really have a kind of knockout effect one after another of these great portraits and then anchor them with really big group portraits. And we've got two of those in Washington.
0: Speaking of, of portraiture, you open the exhibition with a Tineretto, a small Tintoretto self-portrait that's in Philadelphia. How old was Tintoretto when he painted it? And what about it was new and 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 kind of stunning when it was painted in 1546 or 1547?
1: The Philadelphia painting, this is a self portrait of the youthful Tintoretto. He's in his upper 20s, you know, 28 or 29, and this is a small picture, but it's a knockout. It's incredibly powerful. There is little indication of costume or status and none at all of setting we don't know where he is really but the look on his face is bold and almost as if we've interrupted him right maybe he's in the act of painting and suddenly he's aware of our presence and he stares right back at us we think that this picture is really the first uh, loosely painted self-portrait in italian art and possibly western art Earlier self-portraits are very meticulous. You have the sense that someone, the artist, has been looking at a mirror very carefully, but this one is really bold. There are indications of its making all across the canvas surface. He's got lots of short flecked brushstrokes for the hair and the scraggly beard, dots of lighter colors, peach, yellow, white, that make the highlights on the skin. So it really is about the process of being made as a painting. The other thing that's so key, I think, is the expression. I mean, he is challenging the viewer or maybe challenging himself. We believe this painting is painted on the cusp, maybe only a year before his big breakthrough, the enormous mural for the Scuola Grande di San Marco, known as the Miracle of the Slave. That's unveiled in April of 1548. And this comes before that, when he's kind of yearning to to make it big and finally get the credit that he deserves. And so I, I think you have to see these two works together, this intense self-portrait, and then one too big to bring to Washington, the Miracle of the Slave, which is where he's going, where he's getting. And and that, that the, the two of them together suggest uh, his ambition, his, his energy, a kind of ruthless determination.
0: In a catalog essay that's co-signed by both both you and, and Robert Eccles, your co-curator, you note that to, to look at this portrait absent, the self-portrait absent information is to kind of be unable to place it in a specific time. It could be, you
1: know, 200 years later. <laughs> I think you can draw a, a straight line, really, to the Loosely painted self-portraits of later period. Certainly Corbet. I mean, this looks a lot like a Corbet. It could be a 19th century painting, but also think of later 19th century. Think of Cezanne or Van Gogh with all the strong marks on the, on the canvas surface. You know, as this portrait is coming into view, it really shows so much about the artist's process and a real sense of, of energy and, and determination.
0: The catalog argues that Teneretto was a much better portraitist than, than he's generally considered to be. I guess for years, historians have kind of thought that Teneretto's poses didn't vary much that he kind of painted the same portrait over and over again with different faces. So how does Tintoretto emerge as a better portraitist in 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 y'all's eyes? And and I guess it's probably also worth
1: noting the, the weak caveat you include? Tintoretto was born thirty years after Titian, but because Titian has such a long life, these artists overlap for much of their careers. And Titian is a supreme portraitist. He's also a supreme technician. He can do still life elements. He can do, you know, light on skin. He can do beautiful blonde hair better than anybody. And in a way, we think that uh, Titian's general skills as an artist meant that later painters like Veronese or Tintinetto had to choose something else. They had to cultivate other specialties because it was impossible to compete with the kind of textures and soft brushwork that Titian. Uh, specialized in. And that, of course, is true for portraits. There's a lot of influence of Titian on Tintoretto, but Tintoretto's best ones, we have determined, tend to be the most stripped down. That is, in Titian, you can have a great portrait, a likeness of the face and the hands, the body, the costume, and really get a sense of the individual. And there can be a lot of other things in there. There could be an open window to a landscape and a table with a rug on it and a clock and a sword and a book and all that sort of thing. In general, we've decided with Tintoretto, the more accoutrements there are, the lesser the painting it is. And uh, with mm-hmm. tinter, those are kind of distractions or maybe even better compensations when the work is largely delegated to someone in the workshop, some assistant, and the- you make the sitter happy by putting in a lot of extra things, perhaps. And eliminating a lot of portraits from consideration is really the way to make the case as a portraitist to show his best and by this we're using the word connoisseurship in both senses connoisseurship in art history is using visual evidence to try to define what an artist made you know what's the order what's the what are the ones by by the artist himself and which ones are jointly done or collaborations or by yet another artist entirely but connoisseurship in the second sense is about a measure of quality and to try to see which works best communicate what the artist was intending, which ones are are really, let's say, moving the dialogue forward, right? They are, they're based, every work of art is based on past, on tradition, on context, but ones where the artist tries to do something new and new successfully, and that's really what we have isolated. And I will add that the portrait section in Washington will be just stupendous. People, I think, will walk into this room and they'll be struck by all these different figures, these individuals really speaking to us from the mid-16th century. And so these are not just individual Venetians, but these were also the kind of patrons Tintoretto had for different kinds of work, right? The same people that had his portraits would also be commissioning altarpieces or paintings for their palaces, or as government officials, they'd be requesting works to decorate government buildings from Tintoretto.
0: I want to raise two early paintings. One is the National Gallery's Conversion of St Paul, which is a big, sprawling, dramatic, tumbling, brushy thing and the Wadsworth Athenaeum's painting of Apollo and Marsyas, which is calm and quiet and and balanced and and cool. They're completely different paintings. They were painted in about the same year, about 1544 when Tintoretto was 26. To me, a non a non expert, it's pretty astonishing the the range those two paintings show for a twenty six year old for an early career type. Is that unusual? Is does that point us toward toward something somewhere Tintoretto would get?
1: That's an excellent comparison, and I think indicates. One of the real challenges in understanding this artist Mm -hmm. is that even if you strip away works by other artists or imitators, you have real diversity of expression, particularly in the youthful period. And that's what Robert Eccles' dissertation and earlier publications is all about, which is really trying to define these things. And is there a logical core underneath or is there a progression uh, that makes sense as an artist evolving? And of the two you mentioned, the conversion of St. Paul is just wonderful. He's just it is tumultuous and exciting and it's kind of an all-over painting, almost a sort of pre-abstract expressionist thing. I mean, every kind of yeah. inch is covered. And even though it's a scene of great depth, you know, with the river and the distant bridge and the hills and mountains, it also those really seems to emphasize the surface, almost like a tapestry in these same colors, kind of acid blues and greens and whites are and yellows are really picked out that cover all corners. That would have been an extraordinary painting to hang on the wall, right? It's just so loosely painted in 1544. Or so, who would have expected that to be framed on a wall? That kind of looseness you could could and did get away with regularly with a room decoration, a painting for that would go around the frieze above a cornice or in the cornice of a of a room or maybe on the ceiling. That was kind of decorative painting and not except expecting the same level of refinement, finish, care, perhaps. And the so so that in a way you'd expect that picture to have been a decorative one and not not an easel picture and, and you really wonder who would have wanted a picture like this and, you know in 1544 the the conversion of Paul it's just so bold but it's certainly exciting and the key thing to think about this is it would have been perceived by some people as a new picture as a sloppy one definitely but it was definitely also avant-garde cutting edge you know in the same way that a you know Basquiat looked. So carelessly done 20 years ago, and now that sort of aspect is prized about it. I I think this is an important thing about early Tintoretto. Just this was really cutting edge and aggressive, and not at all Titian. It was a not the Titian finish, not the Titian body types. Uh, This was a, a he would indicate with his his knowledge of these other artists by using so citations, quotations, copying forms. You know, the horses and the bridge are all taken from a Titian painting, but painting them with much more aggression and life and more visible brushstrokes and greater energy. So this this is a way of both showing that he understands these sources and then clearly indicating he's moving beyond these influences. Now, the other picture, the, the Apollon Marcius, the story is, and we believe it, that this was done for Pietro Aretino, who was a influential tastemaker and writer and kind of one of your predecessors, Tyler, He, he was a 16th century version of a blogger and his opinions were very appreciated and heated, he seems to be the first person to sell, have published collections of his letters. That his letters to private individuals, he would print up and people would buy them because they were witty and they talked about the issues of the day and they kind of let the average educated reader kind of peer over the shoulder at the correspondence of these influential figures. He was very. Eratina uh, was very close to Titian and really praised Titian again and again, a kind of PR figure for him and. We learn a lot about Titian from these letters, and we learn what is Titian doing at various moments and how these pictures are being perceived by his contemporaries. And Aretino, in return, got lots of gifts from, from artists and influential people, lots of swag. And it makes a lot of sense that Tintoretto, who painted two pictures of which one, the and Marcius, survives, that Tintoretto would have done this for free would have expected good attention, uh, you know, kind of favorable press notices wanted to be even publicized by Titian's publicist. That's a great thing. And this one, you're right. It is calmer and more, let's see, more balanced. And, you know, yes, it's a different kind of energy. It doesn't really look like a battle painting, but it, is a picture to be hung on a ceiling that is a little more refined and polished. But but the, the, the figures are much closer to life size. And indeed, this is something we've also determined. You spend enough time around Tintoretto paintings, you realize that once he gets past his youthful period, basically the rest of his oeuvre are very large figures. Life size are even bigger. For, in most cases. And that is also something about his his ambition. You know, compare him to previous generations of Venetian painters, like Gentili, Bellini or Carpaccio, where the figures are often, you know, two or three feet tall. There's something kind of miniaturized about them. With Tintoretto, the ambition just grows and grows. The paintings get bigger, the figures within the paintings get bigger. And then, as you see many times in the exhibition, they seem to break out of their space, cross over the pictorial plane and into the world of the viewer.
0: Titian and Tinaretto the mature periods of their careers overlap by about twenty years. Are there particularly good examples, ideally in the show, of Tinaretto borrowing or speaking borrowing from or speaking to Titian and and is there maybe also a good example of of Titian having, you know, clapped back?
1: (laughs) So the the Titian-Tintoretto relationship is really interesting and, and sort of fraught, despite their age difference. They their careers do overlap, and they're painting for some of the same people in Venice. And surely, Tintoretto's great ascent in the late 1540s and 1550s probably pushes titian a bit away from venetian commissions right these really large format pictures are harder to do for an older man and titian's later work right you think of the beautiful poesie those those mythological works like the europa from the gardner museum right these kind of things are smaller in format and more easily done by a single artist without a big workshop assisting but portraiture is a key and you'll see that in this exhibition that as Tintoretto goes on. His best portraits tend to be the most sober, the least accoutrements, the the sort of direct gaze at the viewer. And this, in fact, influences later Titian portraits. The older artist begins to go for the more stripped down picture and indeed have more cases of uh, making eye contact, which is something that Tintoretto really specializes in. The conversion of Paul, which is an important painting in this exhibition, showing the youthful artist's ambition and dynamism, also is quoting from. A very large mural painting by Titian for the Doge's Palace of a battle scene where you have a lot of the same things. Figures in the water, horses uh, stampeding, uh, this sort of circular arch of the bridge. Those details would have been understood by any contemporary as references to Titian and trying to kind of quote him or maybe even mock him a bit. The the, the really the best example in the mid-1540s, really just after the moment we were talking about with the contest of Apollo and Marcius and the conversion of Paul. Tintoretto paints an amazing picture, which is Venus and Mars surprised by Vulcan around 1546. And boy, it's it's quite something. It is very funny and kind of scandalous. Vulcan is the god of the forge and blacksmith, and he comes home to his wife, Venus, goddess of love. And behind his back of course venus has been having a long affair with mars god of war and this picture is so weird because he's kind of like expecting her thighs to see if she's just been having sex and she's embarrassed by this and poor mars with his helmet still on maybe they didn't get undressed fully is hiding uh, under a table and trying to avoid a detection and a little dog is about to bark and give his place away and so the the figure of Venus there is taken directly, the pose, from Titian's famous Danae, completed just a couple years earlier. And, but instead of the sort of warm sensuality of, of Titian, this is mocking its body. It's, it's really kind of goofy as a picture. In a way, it's, it's poking fun at the, the grandeur and universality of the gods and making them even more hapless than any mortal. Uh, and so, so this is an interesting example of, of really pushing back uh, at, at Titian, or having maybe fun at his expense with a comic picture that is completely different in mood from the religious paintings that are so powerful and moving. So it shows a another edge to his personality. And then, if you go to the later 1570s, so this is Titian dies in 1576, but starting around 1575, 76, 77, Tintoretto does a lot of pictures on classical subjects, that is Greek mythology and stories, and these are tend to be warm and sweet and amusing and, uh, and sort of gently sensual, very much in Titian's mode. It's as if Tintoretto is trying to take over that share of the market that Titian had cornered uh, in the previous decades. And really the outstanding one in this is The Origin of the Milky Way, a beautiful painting, uh, comes from the National Gallery in London, And there's, again, a funny story behind this, but it's not nearly as uh, bawdy as uh, Venus and Mars surprised by Vulcan. The origin of the Milky Way shows Jupiter, king of the gods, and he has had an affair and had a baby, a, a baby boy with a human woman, not with a goddess. And this is little Hercules, and he wants to give Hercules power to be perfect strength, and and, and and indeed, all the sort of superpowers associated with a god. And so his plan is to go to his wife, Juno, while she's asleep, and have the baby drink from her breast, and that will nourish him, and give him these powers. And in fact, I'm a parent of a newborn, I've got a, a six-month-old daughter, and I can tell you that you don't want to wake up a sleeping baby, and you really don't want to wake up a sleeping mother. And, and so what happens, in, and this is what Tintoretto's painting shows, is that He puts the little baby to the breast of of his sleeping wife, Juno, and, of course, she immediately wakes up, and some of the milk spills and goes down to earth, and that creates the flower the lily and other milk streams right up uh, to the sky. And that creates the stars of the Milky way. And it is such a joyous and beautiful and comic picture. There's something very, very sweet about it. It's the kind of picture, uh, the sort of surprise on Judo's face and just the beautiful deep blues of it. It's a, I I think this is the kind of picture that makes one smile about, and maybe acknowledge Tintoretto as a family man, right? He had many children, uh, two sons and a daughter who worked in his workshop. And I think this, this is the kind it's a, it's an, it's a sort of middle-aged or older artist, I think, uh, reflecting on the, the humor of life.
0: And if I'm remembering correctly, Tintoretto was one of 18 children himself or 21 children himself, something like that?
1: The the biographical information about Tintoretto is is, is somewhat contested, not that large a family he came from, but he did have, we, we believe, eight kids. There's an argument that to feed this big family of eight children required him just to keep up his pace of production, right? He, he couldn't sit back and have a small oeuvre, right? He's no Vermeer. He's got to really crank these pictures out to, uh, to, to to keep his family fed.
0: One other note about the origin of the Milky Way. The lilies are no longer a part of the painting. They were they were cut off many years ago. One of the things that was surely hardest to try to represent in a Teneretto exhibition is his altarpieces, but I want to raise them anyway. What did he bring to the genre and how did he inform it thereafter?
1: Many of Tintoretto's altarpieces are very large format. Some of them are still on their original church altars in Venice, in their original settings. And Robert Eccles and I really take the point that his greatest contributions to to Italian art is his treatment of the human figure, the dynamism of the human figure, the energies that, that flow through the body, uh, and his ability as a storyteller, right? I mean, he can sometimes do beautiful settings or nice still life elements or, Impressive architecture, but really for him, it's the human activity that, that both defines the painting, defines the composition, and also is, is recounting a narrative. And he's you see this in the di San Rocco and other places where he's telling great stories. Those are typically done on horizontal formats. Then altarpieces, by definition, are almost always vertical, right? There's just less physical scope to tell a story because figures are almost always standing, of kind of restricted space, and it's a, it's a tall vertical shape. Uh, in general. Uh, we will have a number of really strong ones in the exhibition, though, in fact, and what is, co- I think, striking about them is how the figures seem often to fall into our space. They really push up against or break through the picture plane, that they really emphasize again and again the beauty of the human body, whether whether it's a, you know, the, the, it's a nude young man or nearly nude old man. There's a sense of muscularity and energy and inner dynamism. And we'll see that again see that again and again, really from early works like the beautiful one of St. Augustine Healing the Lame, where you've got every possible pose of the male nude. It's his really version of Michelangelo's Battle of Cashina design. And this goes right to the end of his career with the very moving picture of the entombment, which comes from its original altar in the Church of Mon- Monastic Church of San George Maggiore, this was in really his last painting, and that will be coming to Washington as well.
0: One of the things I'm, I'm going to chunk this up because I'm not I'm not a Renaissance historian, but one of the things that I notice in a lot of Tineretto paintings that were presumably hung in churches or in other places higher up, is that kind of the top two thirds of the painting, the background of the painting, is in the type of perspective we would expect for an an interior space or an interiorized space and the foreground of the painting, the kind of lower third of the painting often seems to break from, from that perspective to tumble forward to just kind of burst forth. I'm guessing Teneretto does that. And embraces that because he's he knows where these paintings are going and he's creating a dramatic moment for someone looking up at them? Or is he just innovating because he can't?
1: I think it's, it's fair to say that Tintoretto is very conscious of the settings for his pictures. And we're told that by his early biographers, they wrote that whenever he was given a commission or to paint a picture for a certain place, he'd go study it. And he'd think about the architecture, the shape of the room, how high it would be on the wall, the lighting. I mean, he was very attentive. And part of this is the biographers, I think, are trying to emphasize, contrary to Tintoretto's reputation as a sort of haphazard, slapdash, quickly working guy, that he actually was methodical and thoughtful in his planning. But also, I think it's true, because again and again, as you study his buildings, his paintings in the buildings of Venice, you see that he's taken into account where windows are or, or the architectural forms or the The paintings on either side. And uh, what is interesting, I think your comment is very apt about how the upper sections and the lower sections seem to be kind of in different planes or even anticipating different viewpoints. The the lower third often things seem to be right in front of us. You know, if you just could reach up, they could – they would reach out and touch us. And I think that's very conscious because Tintoretto thinks – more, I believe, than his contemporaries about the notion of surface versus depth, right? Because he's this painting with all these exciting brushstrokes. Yes. At the same time, these are marks on the canvas. This is just paint. But you also think about this in terms of depth, that these are forms and shapes existing in three dimensions. And I think he's really interested in this and plays it up by painting so dynamically and quickly with so much visible brushwork, these strong impastos and these zigzag lines that I think are supposed to exemplify this tension.
0: Massacre of the Innocence is a great example of one of those zigzag lines.
1: Exactly. And that, you know, it's a, the, the Master of the Innocence is, is such a, such a, Tough subject because, of course, you know it. It uh, it's very violent. It's a, basically it's like a battle painting, but there's no there's no sort of glamour or heroism in it, right? And uh, and I think it's a sign of of Tintoretto's skill as a narrator of telling stories that in the midst of all this tumult, right in the center, very quietly is a woman who's looking down with a baby on her lap. It's like a Madonna and Child, right? But she's right at the center. and She's looking down, and that's when you realize that in fact that her child has been slaughtered. So it's a just a big impact picture, both the overall effect and, and then individual details. Uh, I mean, he was extremely thoughtful and perceptive as an artist.
0: Yeah, that, that faux Madonna and child is right above the dramatic diagonal. Last Suppers, how many, roughly, did Tintoretto paint, and why do you think they're so very, very, very different from each other?
1: So he painted nine Last Suppers, and he makes a specialty of these, he, you know, feast paintings in general are Venetian specialty. These are big canvases. Titian does them. Veronese does enormous ones. But what's really different, though, is that Titian's and Veronese's tend to be for the walls of refectories, that is dining rooms of monasteries or convents, whereas Tintoretto's tend to be for parish churches, smaller settings, and his are Last Suppers almost all, whereas Veronese, uh, for example, does the Feast in the House of Simon and the Feast in the House of Levi and the Feast of St. Gregory and the Marriage at Cana, the Wedding Feast at Cana. These are subjects that call for more figures Tintoretto's, of course, just call for 13, right? Uh, You know, Christ, the apostles, and maybe uh, a server or two. And while Veronese's feast scenes are set in beautiful architecture, these are tall marble and stone columns, very much influenced by Palladio's architecture, Tintoretto's are usually in much humbler settings. And Robert and I really think it's not just that these parish churches are more humbler settings, but this is a specific evocation by Tintoretto, of his sympathy with the poor and the downtrodden, right? He understands Christian piety and generosity as an important virtue and sympathy with the poor, really, as a, a, a as a sort of basic aspect of his own religious beliefs. And you will see this again and again in these pictures. These, you've got sort of uh, simple furniture. You have the disciples are shown with patched clothing. The meal is not a feast, you know, the, the, the of the Last Supper. It is really, it is really the bread and the wine being exemplifying Christ's sacrifice. Each one of these is different, I think, because Tintoretto understood what a powerful. I mean, the, it, it along with the crucifixion is the pivotal moment in the Christian story, and that the mass that would happen in the building is, of course, re- recapitulating the Last Supper. And many of these were commissioned by little scuole or confraternities. These are groups of lay people whose primary purpose was to give honor to the sacrament, the consecrated bread. And so celebrating communion, holy communion, the Eucharist was their goal. And I think Tintoretto does an amazing job of linking the Bible and the initiation of this story with the charitable aims of these little organizations and the rituals that happened in these very churches.
0: You mentioned Veronese, who was born and died within Tintoretto's own lifetime. You've done a couple Tinaretto shows now. You've done one show that included Veronese. In doing a show such as this one, did you find that you learned new things about Veronese?
1: even though we're both Tintoretto scholars, we have enormous respect uh, for Veronese. I mean, he's really enviable, his beautiful color schemes. I mean, he can, these, you know, those sort of these j- beautiful pastels, right? You know, the robin's egg blue and the emerald green and the canary yellow and the salmon pink. I mean, so pretty. Uh, there's a, he's so good at fabrics. I mean, he's maybe just about the best in doing brocades and embroideries and tapestries and stuff like that. But one thing that but became really clear I used to make the joke that Veronese's figures you know, are always waiting for something to happen, whereas Tintoretto's figures do things. They're just more decisive. But in doing this exhibition, and particularly working on the Venice installation at the Doge's Palace for last fall, Robert and I came up with this idea, which we called the decisive moment. And those, some of those paintings will be in Washington, uh, including the, the fabulous one of Tarquin and Lucretia, where he's attacking her and... The statue, which is a kind of one of the poles of a four-poster bed, is falling to the ground. There's a cushion, and then the broken pearls from her necklace are hanging in midair. And this is a split second. Something that uh, Robert said, and I think he's totally right. It's like the freeze frame in a you know in a cinematic context, right? You've got a scene going on, and boom, it, it stops right there. And this is Tintoretto does this. Other painters don't so much. And I realized what Veronese does by contrast. His elegant figures look like they could hold their nonchalant poses forever, right? In, in indefinitely. Whereas Tintoretto's poses, you can't hold them for more than a second or two. And you realize that some of these would have been done drawn after mannequins. Some would have been done by having pupils in this the studio hold a pose, but they'd have their knee on a box or they'd be holding a rope from the ceiling or holding a pole or some other thing because there's always so much unstable energy in Tintoretto's paintings and some of his figures of course are just made up from his own his own imagination but that's a really big difference i think is to is that you want to give veronese credit for his beautiful use of architecture his superb skills in in cloth and textiles etc texture in general but then understand that indeed his pose, his people's his figures look like they could hold their elegant elegant uh, poses forever and Tintoretto is much more of the instant.
0: There are about 10 or so drawings included in, in your show. There's a separate show that we'll have on the second segment of this program that's also at the National Gallery. Are those 10 drawings included mostly to show us Tintoretto's skill as a draftsman? Or are you hoping that visitors can find seeds of the paintings within them?
1: So we made a point of including a group of great drawings in the large exhibition, because this is not just Tintoretto as a painter, but also as an artist. He's also a great draftsman, and draftsmanship is absolutely central to his his thinking. You know, as a young artist, uh, he is said to have inscribed on the wall of a studio, Il Disegno di Michelangelo e il Colorito di Tiziano, which we translate as the draftsmanship of Michelangelo and the paint handling of Titian. And this is a ar- complicated artistic fusion. And even if he didn't actually write that on his wall, his early period you know, of the late 1540s is exactly doing this combination of dynamic figures, big, muscular, expanding into space, and then soft, lovely, aggressive, and uh, gentle alternating brushwork, really, to sort of coat the surfaces, bring these figures to life through through beautiful, loose brushwork. And we think it really important, though, to think about drawings in the context, not just of, as a draftsman, but particularly how he learned... Uh, to plan his paintings and how he got to his commissions and so we show drawings next to the paintings that they're for we show drawings near oil sketches on canvas these are some you know these are things that would modelli or bozzetti these are large pictures designed to show the workshop what the help them you know, understand what the big competition is going to be. they are things used to win competitions to persuade a patron that, look, this is the one quarter size version. Imagine how beautiful it's going to be when it covers the whole wall kind of thing. And so Tintoretto at work is a very crucial part of this exhibition. And by having – finished paintings and drawings of various levels of finish. We've got quite abbreviated ones and then very detailed ones. And then also showing oil sketches on canvas. I think the visitor will get a very good sense of the stages of Tintoretto's thinking and how he began to tell the stories convincingly.
0: Two more things. You have quite a number of late religious works in the show, late religious paintings in the show. The late works of painters such as Titian and Rembrandt um, such as Rembrandt's late martyr paintings, have been much studied and exhibited in recent years. Is there as clear or evident a shift in late Tintoretto as we see, or, 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 or arguably see, in in late Titian and late Rembrandt?
1: I think it's important to emphasize that in the last few, say, six or so years of his career, before his death in 1594, Tintoretto was actually not painting that much himself, He's running a studio. He's a very busy guy. He's obtaining commissions. He's trying to help out his family members, give them breaks, and take on a lot of work so that even after his death, they will have lots of jobs to fulfill. So he's involved in in various organizations, and he's definitely planning his paintings. That late work, the entombment from the Mm -hmm. Monastery Church of St. George Majority, it's a brilliant composition. As you see, they brought the body of Christ from the far background, the top, where the crucifixion was, br- bring it to the Virgin Mary. Christ's body was laid in her lap, and uh, that's just been picked up instance minutes before and uh, seconds before, really, and, and now she's fainted, realizing that her son is truly gone and there's nothing that can be done, and then they're going to bring the painting of the body To the foreground and laid in the tomb, and and by implication, the actual altar in the church, in in the space of the viewer, it's a brilliant composition. And that was definitely devised by Jacopo Cintoretto, but the actual execution was mostly by his... Particularly his son Domenico, so he's planning a lot, just not painting so much. And the difference is, we believe that certainly with Titian, that the old man is holding, working with his brush to the last you know weeks of his life. And so, in a sense, the late period goes longer in Titian, begins earlier too. In fact, I mean, really, it's a it's a full twenty-five years long. In fact, with Titian, but we do have in the exhibition works that, if not the end of Tintoretto's life, really show a different attitude they uh the landscapes become the protagonists the palette becomes a little more muted there's a sort of hushed and and sort of very resonant mood the number of figures is generally reduced and there's a beautiful baptism painting baptism of christ that comes from the church of san silvestro in venice and that is just about the sort of most hushed and, and 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 gorgeous picture Two monumental figures but shown in very humble poses and the setting, of course, is not the River Jordan as it should be but really looks like the edges of the Venetian Lagoon. And that I would call and Robert and I would say are just great examples of, 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 of you know, late or late-ish uh, Tintoretto. Most exciting are the two works coming from the Scuola di San Rocco. This is this is Tintoretto's masterpiece, this big building, more than 50 canvases, and two of them are coming, showing St. Mary reading and St. Mary in contemplation from the end of that cycle, and they are very special uh, for for our visitors. They've never been outside of Italy, and this is an extraordinary opportunity. The Scuola, uh, the Garden Grando, he's the head of the Scuola, Franco Pasocco. He's an architect, and it's kind of fun to think of him as the Successor many, many generations later of the guy in Venice who green lighted Tintoretto, you know, to work on that same building. And but he made a special point that he thought that these two great paintings should come from San Rocco as ambassadors from Venice to the new world. And for him, this is a to for the world to understand Tintoretto uh, as a great, great painting, great, great painter. You need to have works of this quality from his single most important cycle be there. Also, and Tyler, I want to say just a little bit about, say, Venice, uh, just because that's not only is that my organization, but it's it's been instrumental. A really wonderful aspect of this exhibition is that we started planning for Tintoretto's 500th birthday about four years in advance, pretty long lead time. And it was Very fortunate that the American nonprofit Save Venice, which restores art and architecture in Venice, was able to be involved and really work as a coordinating institution. 19 paintings by Tintoretto uh, were restored in Venice in the last three years in the lead up to this birthday year. And of them, five are actually coming to the National Gallery of Art. And so th- this has enabled a lot of study and examination, and of course the paintings to look substantially better without later restorations, or in one case, sort of fifty years of candle smoke and air pollution and dust that have really defaced or uh, or veiled uh, a gorgeous picture underneath. And that I'm talking about the altarpiece of Saint Martial and Glory with Saints Peter's and Paul, Saint Peter and Paul, that from 1549 uh, for Tintoretto's parish church, San Marziale, that was really a discovery, and I admit that I consider that painting kind of a B-minus, not particularly interesting, uh, and now following this cleaning, it emerges as a, sol- as a solid A. Just an extraordinary painting. Say, Venice also uh, was very instrumental in this exhibition in restoring works of art that would then in turn unlock other loans to come to America. This was helping out various Phoenician institutions that needed, needed restoration work. Say, Venice published books about Tintoretto for the anniversary year, and help subsidize the exhibitions in Venice. So this was a very good example of a kind of American nonprofit partnering with a lot of Venetian institutions and, of course, the National Gallery of Art to make a much grander, more representative and uh, really efficient uh, exhibition.
0: At a time when the American state seems to be receding from its commitments to Europe and other parts of the world, the cultural sector has an even more important role to play in continuing continuing to engage with those parts of the world so i'm uh, I'm glad you you mentioned that
1: and I, I just I think it's a good thing about our country that American nonprofits can step up at moments like this and 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 really make really make a difference.
0: The last painting in the exhibition uh refers to the first painting in the exhibition forty one years after the tinneretto self- portrait that's in Philadelphia. Tineretto makes another self portrait it's now at the Louvre and it closes your show. What, why did you want to close with it? What makes it extraordinary?
1: So if the first picture shows him about age 28 or 29 burning with ambition, this his other self-portrait is totally different. He's about, about 70 years old uh, when he paints this, and it's a totally different effect. You can see he's done pretty well. Success, because he's wearing a fur coat now. But also, boy, he looks so tired and really, really weary. He's not so much looking at us, the viewer, but rather, rather through us. And this is about the moment that Robert and I think is the, r- around the last painting, he really paints himself. There's, you know, it's completely by him in the last, so six years of his life, as we believe he did not paint that much. You really pick up a brush that often. But this one is quite a haunting painting. And in a way we've got those two self portraits, book and the exhibition, but they also show two great moments in his career. He's just on the verge of his breakthrough in the youthful one, but angry, ambitious and really kind of ticked off, uh, potentially aggressive. And then the uh, late one shows him getting ready or preparing himself, perhaps, to step away from the stage and, you know, really delegate much more to his children whom he's taught so well. Uh, This picture, interestingly, uh, it's so somber and really direct than one of Robert's insights as we worked on the portrait section was how the best portraits that Tintoretto does of other individuals are the ones that really come closest to the self-portraits. That is, they're the most stripped down. They don't show lots of you know windows and walls and furniture and accoutrements. And this last picture is so stripped down seems really timeless, right? You could imagine making this in mosaic or something, right? Put on the wall of the Basilica of San Marco with this kind of God the Father looking down at us. But Edward Manet, the great painter of uh, modernity in the 19th century, right? Boulevards, flaneurs, that sort of thing. He said that every time he went to the Louvre, he saw this. He thought that the late Tinderetto self-portrait of that old man was one of the most beautiful pictures ever.
0: Frederick Ilchman, thanks so much.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tyler.
0: The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first-ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.com. Edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Alan Ruppersberg, Intellectual Property 1968-2018. This major retrospective offers a chance to experience the pioneering artist's work in unprecedented breadth and depth. Ruppersberg's first comprehensive U.S. survey in over 30 years, Intellectual Property includes more than 120 works made over the past 50 years, from early assemblage sculptures and photo works combining text and image to drawings and collages. Recent immersive installations are shown alongside Ruppersburg's groundbreaking environments, Al's Cafe and Al's Grand Hotel. Participatory projects that help put L.A. on the map as a center for conceptual art. On view February 10th through May 12th at the Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. In John Waters' Indecent Exposure, the trash auteur behind Pink Flamingos and Hairspray shares 25 years of his visual art. The blockbuster retrospective features more than 160 provocative and wickedly funny works born from waters personal obsessions with celebrity, crime, and lowbrow culture. Don't miss your last chance to catch this exhibition at its second and final stop, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. It's on view through April 28th alongside the photography survey Peter Hujar, Speed of Life, and a new site-specific mural by Bay Area artist Alicia McCarthy. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, Morgan Library curator John Marchiari, who joins me to discuss his exhibition, Drawing in Tintoretto's Venice. It's a survey of roughly 80 drawings by Tintoretto, his studio, and others in and around Venice. Like the ilchman Eccles show, it opens on Sunday. This one will remain on view in Washington through June 9th. John Marchiari, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's nice to be back. So from Vasari forward, Italian writers and painters say... Or claim uh, over and over again that Tintoretto made his paintings without drawings, that he sketched in place on canvas or on whatever medium he was working on, as it were. Yet, as you note in the catalog today, and, and, and indeed, catalog in the catalog today, several hundred drawings by and related to Tintoretto exist, and infrared reflectography has revealed extensive drawing under many of Tintoretto's paintings. So, Is the story of how art historians were as wrong as they once were about Teneretto's drawing practice as simple as Vasari did it, or is it more complex?
2: No, of course it's more complex than that. Vasari, as you know well, had his agenda of posing Florentine art with its great intellectual underpinning in opposition to Venetian painting, which was immensely popular even in Florence at the time Vasari was writing. And so he was looking for an angle, and his angle was that the Florentine investment in an intellectual and theoretical process of design was what made its art different and, in his view, superior to Venetian painting. But it's a great historical stereotype. And yet I don't think it's only… Vasari's fault. The response, the first response to Vasari comes from Ludovico Dolce in his Aretino, a dialogue in which he more or less gives the game away. He takes Vasari's terms and says, yeah, you know, we Venetians, we don't really worry much about disegno. We're more interested in or colorito. And so he, he accepts Vasari's dichotomy and makes an alternate Florentine argument. And I'm not sure that Dolce actually was all that invested in what Venetian artists were doing. He was a kind of literary jack-of-all-trades, not someone steeped in the traditions of Venetian art. But I think even Tintoretto himself created a brand that was all about this bravura brushwork and a kind of sprezzatura, a great facility and energy in painting, the lack of fine finish. That was all part of his brand. And so that too fit with and fed this idea that the Venetians didn't make careful drawings.
0: Your exhibition, as installed at the National Gallery and at the Morgan, for that matter, starts before Tintoretto with artists such as Titian and includes many of Tintoretto's contemporaries. So how might those, those you know, pre-Tintoretto, if you will, drawings and contemporary drama- drawings help us understand or situate what Tintoretto was doing?
2: Well, part of the idea with starting before Tintoretto was to make the case that he was not alone, that there is and was a much longer history of Venetians being thoroughly invested in the art of drawing, that it was standard practice from the time of Bellini and Mantegna, as we've seen in that recent exhibition, on through Titian And through all the work of Tintoretto's contemporaries, people like Veronese or Jacopo Bassano. The other thing that I was trying to show in that section is not only do Venetians draw, but there's a constant experimentation that the kinds of drawings that Bassano does with colored chalks are different from those which Veronese does with the pen And ink, and those are different from Tintoretto's own chalk drawings, that there's not one Venetian tradition, but a constant reinventing of tradition that is as diverse in a way as was designed in Florence or Rome or Milan or anywhere else. So that Tintoretto wasn't alone, wasn't a special case that he fits into this long tradition stretching back to the middle of the 15th century with Mantegna and Squarcione and people like that.
0: You note in the catalog and noted in the Morgan presentation of the show that the first extant drawing of Tinerettos that we have comes from about 1545. It's a it's a drawing of Venus and Vulcan. It is in the paintings show, I think, at the National Gallery. So in 1545, Tinaretto is already about twenty-seven years old, and this drawing is an outlier you note because it's nearly the only compositional drawing of its type by Tinaretto to have survived. So, what what is more typical? What does what does the oeuvre that has survived tell us about how Tintoretto used drawing?
2: Well, there 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 are a couple of different things. There are a couple of different ways to respond to that. First, I think there is one drawing that's even earlier, but it can't be connected firmly to a painting. It's this female figure bending to the left, which, in the catalog, I date fifteen forty five to 52 and I think now I might actually make even a few years earlier. It's closer to the time when Tintoretto and Schiavone, who also appears in that first section, were closely linked. And then the Venus and Vulcan, which, yes, is shown in the, the paintings exhibition along with the related painting in Washington, would follow. I think that we are missing many of the early drawings by Tintoretto partly because artists have a tendency to edit their work and get rid of the things that don't fit. And I think Tintoretto was using drawing as a way of getting to be the artist he became, getting to be the artist who could draw bodies telescoping through space with great facility and foreshortening and all the rest. But also, I suspect that in the early years, he didn't have a studio of his own. And it's only once he's set up a workshop that drawings are made and then just get filed, thrown in a drawer, shoved in a table, put in a portfolio, whatever he did with them. And that while he's still a young artist trying to find his way, trying to establish a clientele, the sketches made at that time don't have a natural home and so just don't survive, it's hard to say. In terms of the compositional drawings, though there's evidence that all of them were kept together by type, that there is a a portfolio or a folder of male figure drawings and one of female figure drawings and another of the drawings after sculptural models, and that the compositional drawings may have all been together. And in Domenico Tintoretto's will, in the will of his son, Domenico, there's a reference to the disegni buoni, the good drawings by the master being given not to the workshop as part of the inheritance there, but to Marco Tintoretto, that's Jacopo's younger son, and I suspect that all the compositional drawings went to Marco and got lost, as happens. I mean, there are more missing drawings than extant drawings by any artist from the Renaissance. So I think he must have made lots of compositional drawings, and they were just lost, because his precedents, people like Schiavone made them, and then we look at the works by his son, Domenico, and all the followers, and there are plenty of compositional drawings. So even though we have close to 200 drawings from Tintoretto's hand and his workshop, it's still a a slice of a much bigger pie in a way.
0: I'm going to wander away from chronology here and probably won't return to it. A couple times at least in in the catalog, you note that the contours of drawn figures in Tintoretto drawings were often traced in oil paint. Could you give us an example and why do you think someone, Tintoretto or someone in the studio, is doing that?
2: So one of the examples, I think maybe the one that is most easily seen in the exhibition, is the standing male nude with his hands on his hips. That's from the Morgans collection, which is a study for an allegorical figure of prudence in the choir of the Medan de L'Orso, Titian's, I mean, Tintoretto's masterpiece, his parish, or his local church. And that is shown double sided so that visitors can see how this drawing that begins in chalk is then traced in oil and then traced through to the back. And it happens with some regularity in Tintoretto's work where the he or had either he himself or he had a studio assistant hold a drawing up to the light and trace the contours in something dark. It could be oil paint, it could be oiled charcoal. And that would then allow him, when holding the drawing up to the light, to copy it through, to trace it through to the back of the sheet, so that he could consider a figure in reverse. Sometimes he uses the original orientation, other times he uses the reverse orientation, and we have examples in the exhibition of both, both where he used the first version, then where he used the reversed version. This is not an unusual studio practice in the Renaissance. Parmigianino, for example, used pinpricking around the contours of his his figure drawings and then flips the sheet over and draws it on the back, which also reverses it the same way. Raphael occasionally tried things in reverse. I think it's just part of the do- design process to think about things the other way. What if this figure were leaning to the right instead of the left? How would that work? So there are a lot of drawings by Tintoretto, and the oil... Paint contours are, I think, just a functional means of clarifying the contours in what's otherwise a messy chalk sketch, but also of transferring the design through to the back so it could be used. But again, that's part of this long, deliberative process of design that we absolutely don't associate with the artist as in the traditional view of him as the impetuous genius who doesn't make drawings.
0: It's also a clear and present example that drawings were actively used rather than just made, which is which is kind of an exciting contemporaneity. Is that a word?
2: I think it's a word. I, I, it's a, I'll take it as a word. I know what you mean. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that any drawing was frozen in time. I think even during the execution of any one painting, Tintoretto might return to the drawing. There are some drawings that begin as nudes and then he adds if not full drapery, the highlights of drapery over the top. For example, there's a study of a figure for the great San Rocco crucifixion, the black chalk nude, but then there are these white lines across the leg that actually correspond to the highlights of the drapery. And I think what Tintoretto did was begin the painted figure as a nude as well, And then when he began clothing it, he would go back to the drawing and think, oh, okay, where would the drapery break over the legs of this nude figure? And so he literally probably has the drawing in his hand up on the scaffold as he's painting the painting, which is also why so many of these drawings have oil paint stains. In fact, this one that I'm mentioning does. Uh, lots of the drawings have bits and have, they have dabs of paint and they're messy and they're stained. And you, you get the sense they really were working material, not precious objects. Tintoretto never made the kind of fancy drawing for collectors that some artists did. For him, all drawings were functional and practical.
0: There's a great example in, in the catalog of how Tintoretto and his studio maybe didn't always build paintings from from drawings, but sometimes there are elements of both practices, using drawings and, and not. And the example I'm thinking of is the St. George and the Dragon in London's National Gallery and the drawing from the Louvre that, that relates to it. How What does that painting and that drawing maybe show or suggest about different modes of working in Tintoretto's studio?
2: Right. I mean, that's one of the few paintings by Tintoretto, that has been subject to a really full technical study, just by virtue of it being in the National Gallery London, which is set up to do such things. And we have there very careful drawing of the nude body lying in the middle distance of the painting, whereas the evidence of, of the infrared suggests that the princess in the foreground was more or less drawn with the brush directly to the canvas. And we certainly have no drawing that relates to her. And then there are other parts of the painting, the city in the background, which is very carefully laid out, and almost drawn with a ruler and plotted out as a perspective scheme. I don't think that Tintoretto necessarily had a single working practice. We sometimes think, because of an artist like Raphael, that there was a a single mode of working, where you made a sketch, and then you made refined figure drawings, then you made a compositional modello and moved up to a cartoon. I don't think the process for Tintoretto was that systematic. I think he used drawing when it would help him and was happy to abandon it when it was not necessary. Especially at that early moment of his career, the St. George is from, oh, I don't know, around 1553, I think is the date most of us agree on now, a Nude was a special thing, and that required study of the live model in the studio, which is seen in the the Louvre drawing, which will be, again, with that painting in the upstairs exhibition in Washington. Draped woman was a different case. He wasn't going to show the body, although the evidence is that he originally laid the figure in as the contours of a nude before laying the drapery over the top. It was because it was going to be clothed in all of this voluminous drapery, probably just required less careful attention to anatomy. But even there, he again starts the figure as a nude study. It's all it, it all rests in the study of the human body as a real form underneath all of the drapery, which again is not the way we think of Venetian artists proceeding is is the sort of thing we associate much more with central Italian art, but is there. To be seen, at least in the infrareds of those paintings.
0: There's a whole chapter in the catalog about Tintoretto and and drawing of sculpture, or at least casts. So why are there so many Tintoretto and workshop drawings after Michelangelo's sculptures?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting thing because that sculpture that is most often drawn, the Samson and the Philistines, was a sculpture that was never executed by Michelangelo. The cast for it survived, though. It's it's the same block of marble that ultimately becomes Bandanelli's Hercules and Caicos. And with the political change in Florence and the Medici being out and then coming back in, the the project uh, goes to Bandanelli and was not done by Michelangelo. But the cast survives and somehow makes its way to Venice, where it's drawn again and again by Tintoretto's and his workshop. And there are virtually no Florentine records of that cast. So, why is it important? I think early on in his career, and possibly, likely, probably, through the agency of Pietro Aretino, Tuscan who had settled in Venice and with whom the young Tintoretto was associated, I think Aretino may have, I don't know, how do you put it, tipped Tintoretto off to the expressive potential of the human body as seen in the works of Michelangelo. Likewise, Sansovino there in Venice, and he too is responding to the example of Michelangelo. So I think when Tintoretto has access to these various castes, the head of St. Damien that's sent to Taratino by Vasari, the Samson, the Philistines, the tombs, the, the, al- the allegorical figures from the Medici tombs, these become building blocks for Tintoretto's art not in the sense that they would be copied and quoted directly in one of these elusive mannerist games, but rather they showed him how the human body could be used to tell a story. And I think that was the lesson that he wanted, above all, to teach to his workshop assistants. And as I say in the catalog, I think it says a lot that this artist whose assistants rarely made any of the drawings were painted, but just executed according to his own designs, we're still being taught how bodies work through copying drawings or copying sculptures. Or I think most of the time they're copying drawings by Tintoretto after the casts of sculptures. So that you have a scenario in which you have the sculpture and then Tintoretto's own drawing pinned to the wall next to it, and then the assistants are learning how to interpret form through the master's own drawing. So it becomes a standard training exercise for him, which he must have forced every member of his enormous studio to do. It's the only way to count for so many drawings by so many different hands, all copying his own examples.
0: So this is also why there are so many Grimani Vitellius drawings after a, a, an ancient surviving head from Tintoretto's studio.
2: Exactly. We know from the studio inventories that he owned a plaster cast of the head. The original was in Palazzo Ducale at that point. We know that he owned a cast. And it's, uh, again, one of those standing exercises that he must have made every one of the assistants do. And it's interesting, every now and then you see one of the assistants bust out from beyond the model. One of the best of the Gramani Vitellius drawings in the exhibition, one that has a personality and a character of its own that doesn't look like a copy of a copy of a copy of a drawing actually can't be by Tintoretto because it's by a left-handed artist. And I have no idea who that left-handed assistant is, but there are four or five other drawings by him out there mixed in with Tintoretto's in various collections. But yeah, some of the drawings after sculpture have little sketches on the bottom where you see, someone has drawn probably a little sketch of the guy next to him sitting with his drawing board on his lap. You get the sense that, yeah, you know, some of these assistants must have been kind of tired. You know, not another drawing. Do we have to draw the Gramani Vitalius again? Do we have to do the Samson from the back as well as the front? You do get the sense that some of these drawings are really just mailed in, that the assistants didn't quite see the point or didn't really embrace the the practice. But it was obviously a key training method for Tintoretto himself.
0: There is a section at the end of the show that includes drawings that are not Tintoretto's. And maybe the best way of, of, of introducing that section of the show is the catalog chapter title, which is the drawings of the young El Greco in Italy, question mark. So, why did you include that section, and why the question mark? And what are you hoping that section of the catalog and show sparks?
2: So, thinking of the show not just as Tintoretto's drawings, but drawing in Tintoretto's Venice, how he, where he comes from, a tradition, and then how he bequeathed this tradition to his sons and his workshop followers, and on into Paul Majovney, who's the very tail end of the show. In the middle of all of that, there's a bo- there's a body of drawings. They've been, since the 1940s, people have recognized that there's this group of drawings that fits together. They're all by one artist. And that artist is somewhere between Tintoretto and Palma Giovanni. And the drawings have been attributed to the mast for more often the workshop of one or the other. They're clearly made in Venice in the 1570s. They quote things like Tintoretto San Polo Last Supper. So they're in, and they're in a kind of Venetian technique, but they're messier. They're brush drawings more than chalk drawings. They don't look like Tintoretto's own drawings nor Palma's own, but they allude to the practices of both. So it's they've always been thought of as this mystery draftsman working in Tintoretto's immediate milieu. And about 10 years ago, Nicholas Turner, looking at this body of material, said, you know, while you would never look at any one of these drawings and think El Greco, if you think about what El Greco was doing in his five years in Italy, and you think equally about his problems, So we know he's in Venice, then he goes to Rome, he comes back to Venice. We know he's associated with Tintoretto's circle because of various things that El Greco writes in the margins of his copy of Vasari's Lives. his His own voice makes clear that he's associated with Tintoretto, apart from the obvious similarity of their painting style. So Nicholas Turner looks at these and says, you know, some of the characteristics of these, the way that... Figures are smashed against the, the picture plane, the way that you get heads grouped together, the way you get bodies jumbled together and put in shadow, because whoever made these really did not have a very good grasp of anatomy. They sort of, they fudge anatomy. And then little details, you know, the way that veils are plunked across the heads of certain figures, the tendency to juxtapose flat, profile heads with three quarter view heads with frontal heads, all of those characteristics turner says are there in this body of drawings so could these drawings which are made by someone who is analogous to tintoretto but not clearly not trained by him or anyone else they're 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 of a different type they're of a different technical procedure could these be by that outsider floating around the studio in the 1570s, that is to say, the young El Greco, he wrote an article in Master Drawings that sets out the story. Then it was followed up by another article by Rick Scorza, who compares the handwriting on some of these drawings with Tintoretto, with El Greco's own handwriting, as seen in his marginal notes to Vasari and elsewhere, and that doesn't prove anything absolutely for anyone, but it's certainly close enough that it doesn't reject the possibility. So here's the backstory on all this. Now it turns out the Morgan owns two of these drawings already, and our partner, the National Gallery of Art, owns one and another as a promised gift to them. And I think while I would never, well, I probably would never have devoted an entire exhibition just to this set, in the context of a Tintoretto show, it's a, it's the perfect moment to bring these a group of these together and show them because we have a core group from our own institutions, plus we can borrow more from institutions that are already lending to the show. It's an easy way of assembling a group so that people who have only known this theory through the journal articles can now see it for themselves. It's a kind of fun intermezzo in a way. I think there is something to be said for the argument Although, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those cases that can never absolutely be proven or disproven, I think. And ultimately, it gets people to look more closely at the drawings and ask questions about how the drawings work of this group and then the show more generally, which is what I'm trying to accomplish as a whole. So into the exhibition it went, you know, there are those who remain steadfastly opposed to the idea that these could be by El Greco, but nor is there any convincing alternate identification of the artist who was responsible for them. So, uh, you know, I leave it as a question mark, but I think a tantalizing one and, and a fascinating exercise, both for scholars and for the general public to think about how do you tell? How can you make such an argument? What do we know as art historians? How do you use drawings as evidence when there is no other evidence?
0: I saw the show in the Morgan, and it's a really—I mean, the, the drawings are really different, and it's, like, jarringly different. I'm, I'm sure it'll be quite a moment in uh, in Washington, too. John Marciare, thanks so much. Oh, sure. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program.